Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Let me ask a question this morning to get started. How many of you are like me, and you are conflict-averse? Anybody just hate conflict, just don't like it? Uh, you know, like maybe you're the kind of person that when there's a touchy subject that comes up, you're, you're just gone, right? Uh, or when the conversation gets a little too heated, you know, you duck out like you should be in an Aflac commercial, you know, sort of thing. Like it's just, it's just not for you. Because we don't want to upset people or offend people or hurt feelings. But sometimes those difficult topics need to be discussed, don't they? There are times when conversations have to happen that involve maybe some kind of conflict or we're going to stand for these principles and I'm not going to buckle on those. And that can get kind of weird. So sometimes we have to hash things out and it's not always healthy to just skip out on those uncomfortable times. And one thing I think as Christians that we probably struggle with the most in that is I don't want to kind of be unchristian in this conversation. I know it's going to get maybe awkward or weird. I'm going to stand on this principle that I believe, but I don't want to say or do something that's going to maybe be unchristlike. So that's some of that tension, I think, especially as followers of Jesus that we struggle with. But as we said, sometimes we have to engage in those topics or discussions at certain times. And so scripture, luckily, will show us today how we can do that, how we can stand for our convictions and how we can sometimes make compromises. And so we're going to be in Acts 15 today looking at convictions, compromises, debates, and disagreements. Everybody's favorite series of words there all together, okay? Acts 15, convictions, compromises, debates, and disagreements. So as we enter Acts 15, the church is still pretty new. I mean, it's maybe entering its second decade of existence, but for a an institution that's trying to go worldwide, that's pretty new. And there's a lot of things that the church is trying to figure out. They're trying to figure out who are we really? What are the core beliefs, the convictions that we stand upon? What defines us? And who really belongs in this group? Is it, is it for everybody? Are the rules the same for everyone that comes in? And the big, the big debate that we're going to read about and talk about in Acts 15 is this idea that Christianity, as we know it now, back in this day, is very much still a Jewish thing. It's an offshoot of Judaism because Jesus, who started the church, basically, right? He was Jewish. His followers, who really established the church, are very much Jewish. And yet, in the last 10 years or so, the first you know, decade of the church, these outsiders or Gentiles, non-Jews, are coming to faith in Jesus. And so the church is struggling on, okay, what do we expect of everyone here? Are the rules the same? What are the core convictions and where can we compromise? And so the problem with this is not only are the Gentiles trying to figure this out, not only are the leaders like Peter and Paul and James and John trying to figure this out, but there are other teachers, and this is what we get into in Acts 15, that Paul would call Judaizers, who are teaching something different from what some of these other people are teaching. So the Judaizers are Jews who have, looks like put faith in Jesus. They're called believers in the, in the scriptures, but they're teaching that not simply faith in Jesus alone equals salvation. 
The Judaizers are teaching, well, yes, you want to believe in Jesus as your Messiah, but also continue to keep the Old Testament law. And on top of that, the main thing that was a huge debate is they also keep this idea of circumcision. Because that was a huge sign for the Jewish people that they belong to God. This is the, this is the covenant that they make with God through this idea of circumcision that flows down to the, the family line. But Peter and Paul are like, well, no, maybe we shouldn't make the Gentiles do that. Is that too onerous on them? Is that too much? And so the church leaders get together and they have a meeting to kind of hash things out. They decide, what are our convictions and where can we compromise in these debates and disagreements? So we're going to look at this idea here today. And it is going to seem a little like church history, which it is. It's what Acts is. But I hope that we can also see how these ideas apply in our own life, in our own day and time, even now. Okay? So we're going, to, we're going to start in Acts 15, verse 7, and look kind of when this church council gets together in Acts 15, what they're talking about, what they're deciding to do here with these convictions and compromises. So Acts 15, verse 7, let's start it here. It says, at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So here's, here's his challenge. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe, here's his conviction, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So this church meeting in Acts 15 is all about convictions. Who are we? What do we stand for? What do we believe? What are our key unshakable principles? And the core conviction that they're trying to work through, that the main thing that they really want to hash out here is who is considered saved? In this new movement, who is considered one of us, a Jesus follower in this movement? Because the issue is, obviously, Jews and Gentiles have totally different backgrounds that they're coming from. They're coming to the same Savior, which sounds nice and simple, but it's very messy. Even now, it still can be the case. They have different cultural beliefs. They have different customs. And so they're trying to figure out what's the uniting factor for people within the church. And Peter tries to clearly make his case, state his case here. The conviction is that faith in Jesus alone is what saves someone. That's it. So again, the Judaizers are telling people, no, it's that plus the law. It's that plus circumcision. If you don't have these other things in line, then you can't belong with us. You're an outsider into this new movement. That's what they're teaching. What Peter hints at here is what Jesus said in his own day and time. And what Paul affirms in his writings is that when you follow Jesus, in essence, you are following the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. So we're saved into Jesus and then we live according to his teachings, which covers all of that. So it's not Jesus and this, it's that he fulfills all of that. So we're automatically doing what they're trying to get you to do in addition to following Jesus. And also the idea here that circumcision is not a requirement for salvation. And Peter says, God, listen, our ancestors for thousands of years have struggled and struggled to do the law. No one's been able to keep it. No one's been able to pull this off, including the best of the best of us from our history. 
So why would we burden these new people who are so ready to serve Jesus, so ready to be a part of this new thing, so ready to surrender their lives to this Messiah, and we're going to pile 600 plus laws on top of them all of a sudden? That's not going to work. That's not how this is going to work. He says we're saved by the grace of Jesus and we live by the teachings of Jesus. And this is our conviction. And so what Peter is saying here is we will die on this hill. We will fight over these issues. We will fight the Judaizers. We will debate them. We will withstand them because their teaching is not what we believe about who Jesus is. This is not the last time these types of conversations happen in the history of the church, including the famous day in 325 AD where Santa Claus slapped a guy. Yes, I, you heard me correct. I got a picture here to uh, paint an artist. Uh, pain to show you this moment in history. So in 325 AD, about less than 300 years after this moment in Acts 15, there's another church meeting that's coming in the city of Nicaea. And they are, they are trying to, again, still, this is 300 years later, and they're still trying to figure out what their core beliefs are, what their convictions are. So at this meeting, all these leaders and bishops and pastors are getting together, and the main topic on this meeting is who is Jesus, the, really the divinity of Jesus. Most, a huge majority of the churches affirm what the scriptures have said, have said all along, that Jesus is divine. He is God in flesh. He's fully God, fully man. He is God, okay? However, there was a, at least one teacher of some fame who's getting his face slapped here named Arius, and he had this belief that Jesus is not divine. He's not eternal. He was created by God the Father. And he's been promoting this belief for some time. It's starting to spread in the churches here in the three, early 300s. And so the church gets together and they give him a platform. Arius, you can go ahead and defend your position. We'll hear you out before we kick you out as a heretic, you know, which they did. We're going to hear you out. Maybe if, if you can convince us through the scriptures what you say is true, then maybe we can adjust these convictions. And so he gets up and he starts to give his views about why the Son was a creation of the Father, why Jesus is not divine, he's not fully God. And Nicholas, okay, St. Nicholas is in this meeting. There's some debate on whether or not he was on the actual role, but I just, it's too good to not be true, okay? It's just one of those things. I just, just amazing story. He's sitting there listening to Arius. And the legend has it, he's getting more and more frustrated the more that Arius spouts his heresy. And he just can't stand it anymore. So eventually, he literally gets up, walks over to Arius, and smacks him across the face to shut him down. So jolly old St. Nick had a, was having a rough day this, this day. Right? <laughs> but it wasn't that he's having a rough day, it's that he had these core convictions about who Jesus is. If he's not God, then what's the point? If he's not divine, then we're worshiping a man, which is idolatry. And that's like breaking one of the key important laws of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, of who God is. So it's imperative that this be a key conviction for Nicholas, for the early church, and even for us. So there are certain convictions in our faith, even now, that I'm just going to submit that we cannot waver on. If you're going to classify yourself as Christian, there are some core beliefs, especially about Jesus, that I'll, I'll list just for a second, that we might take for granted as obvious or a given, yet they are essential. Without these beliefs about Jesus, we're something else. Okay, So there, there are more than these, but here are some core convictions quickly, just about Jesus alone, uh, that are core convictions. Uh, first, it's the, the core conviction that mankind is sinful, fallen and broken. And in that sinful state, we are separated from relationship with God, and we are under His wrath. 
So the core conviction is that Jesus is God. He's eternal. He's divine. He's uncreated in nature. The core conviction about Jesus is that he came to earth as a human. While though in human form, fully human, he was also fully divine, fully God at the same time. The core conviction about Jesus is that he lived a sinless life. Now that's important because without, without a sinless sacrifice in place for a sinner, that sacrifice is no good. So in the Old, Old Testament sacrificial system, it, God was very clear. The, sacri the animal that you bring has to be clean, spotless, no bruises, no blemishes. It can't be lame. You know, it can't be sick. It, well, it's, it's going to die eventually, so I'll just give God this one. He's like, no, no, it's got to be healthy, the best of the best, pure in every way. Jesus was our pure, spotless sacrifice for sin. A core conviction about Jesus is that he died on the cross as our substitute. Because our sin separates us from God, we're under his wrath and judgment, and rightfully so. Yet Jesus, the sinless one, sacrificed himself on the cross in our place for our sin. A core conviction about Jesus is that he physically died. So that the total human part's important because he died a literal physical death. And then three days later on Easter Sunday, he literally physically bodily rose from the dead supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit. A core conviction about Jesus is that anyone who turns from sin and places their faith in Jesus alone is forgiven from their sin and reconciled to a right relationship with God. Then we believe that after he resurrected from the dead, he then ascended into heaven. We believe that he will return one day to reunite with his church, his bride, to be with them forever. Those are core convictions about Jesus. If you can't check all those boxes in your belief system, then I would say that you would not be considered a actual Christian, biblical believing Christian. There are other things that I'm, I'm not going to get into every single core conviction, but about Jesus, which is about what this is mainly about in Acts 15, those are the core things of our faith. These are what I would call salvation issues. These are what you might, or what certainly St. Nicholas would say, these are closed-handed issues. These are, we're not on the same team if we can't have these core convictions in check. These are non-negotiables. Yeah. However, nearly everything, not, well, not a large majority of everything else regarding faith, there are compromises that can be made. And that might sound very dangerous, what I just said there, but we see it here in Acts 15. We see it uh, later on here. This compromise will kick in because the church now, now that they've made this core conviction, this is what salvation is. This is who Jesus is. We will not we will not buckle on any of it. Like we're standing firm on these core convictions of our faith about who is saved and who is not, who Jesus is and who he is not. But now we have to think practically again in the first century church in Acts 15. OK, but what does that mean practically for the people? Yes, they put their faith in Jesus and in him alone. It's not according to the law, not according to circumcision. We're not adding anything to save by grace through faith. That's it. But now we have to consider, okay, what then is required to live for Jesus after that moment of salvation? What are the expectations that people would have? And that's really where a big debate also came, came about in Acts 15. Because if it's not the law that we obey, then what do we do? How do we instruct people, especially the Gentiles who come from all sorts of pagan backgrounds, all sorts of polytheistic backgrounds, all sorts of other foreign customs? How do they move forward into this new faith that they've experienced? And so as the meeting progresses in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas give sort of an update on what they've been doing. They've been on their journey that we've chronicled the last few weeks. They're sort of back here at home base and they give a report of what they've seen happen through the Gentiles and to the Gentiles. 
Then after they give their report, James, the brother of Jesus, gives his compromise. He gives his idea of how we can move forward and unite all these varying peoples into one united people following Jesus. So let's skip down to Acts 15, verse 13. And this is what James, he sort of gives a synopsis here of what he thinks they should do moving forward as a compromise for the, the new church here in Jerusalem. So Acts 15, 13. When they had finished, that's Paul and Barnabas, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a, to take them from them a people for Himself, and this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. So He's saying where we are now, we're having this debate, but the Holy Spirit knew hundreds of years ago we'd be here having this debate. He quotes the prophet Amos uh, in the Old Testament. He says this: As it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. So again, he's saying this is a, a difficult moment, but the Holy Spirit's leading us through this because he knew it was going to happen. He knew it's going to get messy at some point. Then he goes on to say this. So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them three things, okay? To abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So they're having this debate. Peter gives his idea of here's our conviction, and then uh, Paul and Barnabas give their view of here's, here's the different kinds of people that we've ministered to. Here's the different types on a large spectrum of Gentiles that we've ministered to. And then James says, okay, here's what we need to go moving forward. Here's my suggestion. So he settles on three, really, it sounds like four things. Really, it's three things. Two of these suggestions are pretty obvious for anyone that knows anything about the first century Jewish faith, anything about faith in Jesus. They're, they're pretty obvious. He says, we affirm a biblical sexual ethic for anyone who wants to follow Jesus, and we, they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Now, those are the most obvious, and they're also connected, especially for the Gentiles who are coming in from a pagan background, because the, uh, the sexual lifestyle is going to be connected to their worship of other gods. So most false, prophet, or false gods are going to have their own temples. And most, if not all of these temples, these false gods are going to have temple prostitution as a big part of the worship. So if you can imagine how that would look on like a Sunday morning, if we still did that sort of thing, it would be kind of weird. But that was normal in this ancient culture. Uh, uh, crazy sexual exploits as part of worship to these foreign gods is what they're coming into. He's like, well, we can't have either one of those things. Those are pretty obvious, but let me just state it for a fact here. We're going to affirm a biblical sexual ethic, and we're going to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Um, and so then the third thing might seem kind of weird, but here we'll explain it for just a second. The third thing that's kind of two in one is he says, no meat from strangled animals and no consuming of blood. Why would he include that one in there for these Gentiles? There's a few possible reasons why. Let's look at it for just a second. First, it's possible that he's just setting a sort of ethical norm, sort of a baseline, because the idea in the Old Testament law with these laws, and there's many of them, is the value of life. So with this animal that's been strangled, there's been a devaluation of life. So eating that animal would not be in accordance with the Old Testament law. It devalues life. So he's affirming that same idea, I think, moving forward in, even into the first century and beyond. 
Also a big part of church gatherings, uh, even first century Jewish gatherings, is food. It's what scholars would call table fellowship. So that eating is a big, even when you read about communion in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about when you come together, some of you are eating and engorging yourself and then taking the Lord's Supper and someone hasn't come yet because they're getting laid off work and then they come and all the food's gone, like the, the communion's gone, and he said this is not right. So even in there, he's hinting at a cultural norm. That food, feasting, is a big part of the, communion, the community of faith in the first century and even before that. So he's also setting a baseline here, I think, for table fellowship. But here I think really the biggest thing is he's making a huge compromise on all of the various kosher laws of the Old Testament. Because again, he's saying, if we have a hard time keeping these laws and we've been brought up in it, we're born into it, we have this heritage and we can't do this and it's a strain on us, why are we going to ask these people coming in to do that? They can't keep the law if we can't keep the law either. So basically, he's trying to make this compromise for these two worlds to coexist together. So he's dumbing down dozens of food laws and cleanliness laws from the Old Testament into this one main idea that values the life of that animal. And so this is a great thing here that we see that, you know, James just says, here's my suggestion. And that's kind of, it doesn't say if they talk more about it, they discuss that, if they, you know, but when they write a letter later to the Gentile churches in the areas and send them out, that's the three things that are still included in this letter. So they, they made this compromise. We're not going to, we're going to kind of get to the, the big law here that we want, that we think is important for table fellowship. Here's what I love, though, um, about these, about this compromise, and it really gets to our day and here in time here as well. When it comes to these compromises that James proposes, he's not, let me just say it this way. I was going to rephrase it. I wrote it down for a reason because I can say it better this way. Circumcision obviously is not required for salvation. But part of the compromise is also it's not prohibited. You see how that works? This doesn't save you, but if you do it, it doesn't make you unsaved either. That's a big part of this. He's also saying these, these other kosher laws about how we eat and how we handle food, they're not required for salvation anymore under the law, under the new covenant with Jesus, but they're also not prohibited. If you want to follow the kosher laws of the Old Testament even now, you're welcome to do that. I mean, good luck, but you're welcome to do that. And so that's, that's the great thing about James's compromise, and really compromise in general, is if you want to do these extra things, fine. But it doesn't make you a better Christian if you do them. If they don't want to do these extra things, that's fine. It doesn't make them a lesser Christian if they choose not to do them. This is part of our sanctification as we grow in our faith and our relationship with Christ. Is some people have convictions about certain things that are not salvation issues, not convictions. And so they make those, that's hard to say compromise, but they, they make those trade-offs. I genuinely don't sense a, a conviction about this thing that Scripture doesn't say is a conviction either. And so I'm, I feel free to do that. But other people might say, no, no, I, I, I can't do it. Maybe it's a background thing or a family history thing. And so I don't know that I can partake in that thing, but I'm not going to judge them for doing it. And the other person says, well, I'm not going to do it, but I'm not going to judge them if they decide they want to do that. But that's, that's part of the compromise here. And let me just kind of show how this works in Scripture. So we, we're getting a little bit ahead here, but in Acts 16, we see this played out perfectly. Again, we're going, we're going to the idea that the law is not required, but it's not prohibited, okay? And circumcision is not required, but it's also not prohibited. We see it in Acts 16. So when Paul goes back out on his, missionary, his second missionary journey after this, here's what we find. So this, is, this, is, this will tie it in here and be really important. 
Acts 16, verse 1. When Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra, where there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer, but his father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium, so Paul wanted him to join them on their journey. Catch this, verse 3. In deference to the Jews of the area, he arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left. For everyone knew that his father was a Greek. So we're seeing this compromise in real time in Acts 16. Because did Timothy, was the circumcision required for Timothy to be a Christian? No. Was it required for him to go with Paul on his missionary journey? No, it says in deference to the Jews in the area, they chose to do this. They made a compromise, if you will, to do this. And really the reason is because it made Timothy's ministry easier for him. I can have an easier, wider influence on more types of people, both Jews and Gentiles, when preaching Jesus, if I do this one simple thing. So again, it's not a core conviction that he's breaking. It's not an extra command that he's following and he's wrong. It's that I'm going to do this thing that's a secondary issue to then have a wider effect and influence on people. So he made this compromise without altering his convictions. So to say it this way, if convictions are salvation issues and they're closed-handed issues, then compromises are secondary issues and they are open-handed issues. We can shake and work together. That's what most faith issues are. Most of them are. Let me give you some examples. So, for instance, like worship styles in churches is a secondary issue. It is a compromised issue. It is not. So if, if your church, and I'm saying your church, I know you're at this church, but if you've been to a church that has a choir, we don't have one of those. That's a secondary issue. It is not a thing, a closed-handed thing to punch each other over, okay? Is any St. Nicholas's out there, you know? It's just not what it is. Uh, if, if we decide that we're going to, we're obviously pretty casual uh, church. You've been to probably churches. I grew up in a church that was much more formal. So as a little kid, I had cute little suits and ties, and I've got the pictures to prove it, okay? Squeeze my cheeks, and I'm so cute, you know? Uh, but that's not who we are. It's not who God's called us to be, and that's okay, that's a compromise because it's a secondary issue. Yet churches and nominations fight over these stupid things all the time. And we'll talk about the danger of that here in just a second as we close. Things even like what we call church polity or how churches are, how they function, the leadership structure, differ obviously from church to church. And that's okay. It's a secondary issue. Some churches, local churches, local bodies, really are controlled by regional leadership. And so their pastor will come and go as the regional leadership decides to place and to, and to pluck them out. That's fine. It's a secondary issue. Uh, some churches, you know, the members vote on every single thing all the time. And that's where churches split because the carpet color was voted 51 to 49. And I hate this color, so I'm leaving the church, right? Some churches do that. There's pluses and minuses to all of these, but that's what I'm saying. There is no right or wrong answer necessarily. It's a secondary issue. And there are some churches, you know, like we would be, where we're pastor-led, board-supported. That's, that's how we function. There are pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses to every one, but they're secondary issues. There's no thing, there's no rule book, there's no scripture that says it must be run this way to the letter. Okay? So those are different things like that. Different church customs or traditions, they vary, and that's okay. They are secondary issues. So maybe you're familiar with more of a liturgical feel, and you maybe have more call and response at where, what you grew up in or what you maybe even feel really comfortable in. 
That's okay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that approach. It's just how God's called that local church or that group of churches to function. It's a secondary issue. Maybe you're used to weekly communion. We do it once a month here. Maybe you're used to every, every time we're there we do this or other traditions that churches have. Maybe you're used to like the incense in your churches and different things like that. Those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with any of those things or most of those things, I would say. I want to give a caveat there because you're going to, someone's going to come to me and say, what about this? And I'm like, now I'm in the corner, okay? So I'm covering myself. I'm hedging my bets. But these types of things, a majority, a vast majority of them are secondary issues. They're just differences along the way. And we see that all the way from the beginning. There are certain requirements and convictions that we will not shake on. The core foundational beliefs of our faith we're going to stand strong in. But the other things are secondary. And they can vary. They can change. And that's okay. Preferences are preferences. They're not rules. And so we want to make sure that we think that way and live that way. These smaller secondary compromises, we can still work together as a church. And I think it's a beautiful thing. Let me close with this idea. Sometimes when it comes to this word compromise, we like, ooh, ooh. We, we, sometimes we just, you know, don't like, we bristle against, or we fear that word because we think, I like things done the way that I like them. I don't want to compromise this thing that makes me feel more comfortable or whatever. Or we've never, I've, I've never experienced it done differently, and so if we deviate, man, I don't know if I can handle that. That's just human nature. Or sometimes we fear, if I let go of this way of doing this thing, not even church-related or faith, just in life, okay? We don't like change. We're creatures of habit. But sometimes we think, if I let go of this tradition, then a slippery slope, when will it end? Am I going to keep changing, changing, and then it's something else? And honestly, that's what Peter, if you go back to Acts chapter 10, when he first reaches the Gentiles, that's his first thought too. He has this vision from God about these unclean animals, and God says, kill them and eat them. And he's like, whoa, we've never done it that way before, God. Whoa, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, that's, that's against the law. That's not how things should be done. Those are big compromises that you're asking me to make. But God's trying to get Peter to see this point, that now Christ has fulfilled all of those things. And so we're trying to reach these people. So we have to maybe change some methods sometimes from what we're used to. If we're going to be, have an impact on a culture that is ever, ever increasingly changing, sometimes we have to be okay with maybe pivoting just a little bit. We're not changing our core convictions at all, but the method by which we do certain things may shift or change from time to time or place to place. That's what uh, Peter's trying to learn here. And so the, here's the main question I want to answer as, the, as we close. Sometimes we fear, if I let go of these traditions, where will it end? Well, we've already established where it's going to end. We have core convictions that that's the end point. If we get to that far, we're like, to do this new thing, we have to change what we believe about Jesus. Well, then we've gone too far because we're crossing into that conviction zone that is a no-go. So things might shift. Things might change. And not every compromise, again, that, that maybe not the best term. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say in that. Not every compromise or change is equal. So if we're trying to get, if the church in Acts 15 is trying to get to a 5 on a 1 through 10 scale, there are going to be some Jews that are at a 1. And they're going to have to pull them four steps to the 5. And there are some Gentiles that might be at a 7, so they're closer, but they have to give up certain things too. And so they have to get two steps. It's not always equal or fair or the same, but we're trying to find this room that we can come together and be united as one. And that's the whole point is we're united in our convictions, and we can stay united despite the compromises. That's the beauty of the church, is that there are various types of churches, and that's good. There are various ways of doing church, and that's 
fine. That's okay. As long as the convictions aren't shaken, the compromises can be made. And that's the whole point here. And we'll, we'll kind of pick up on this in several weeks. We're going to start a series for Easter next week. So we're going to kind of pause this. But we're going to come back to it in even a more personal way after that. Kind of conclude this idea from Acts 15. But again, the whole point is we're united in our convictions and we're united despite the compromises in the church. And I hope that we can learn, even though it's uncomfortable, even though sometimes we kind of bristle at that, I hope we can learn to kind of be okay with that. Because that's how the church started. We're all different. We all come from different places, backgrounds, time zones, even, you know, stuff, traditions. And so we have to learn how to stay united despite those things. And hopefully, through the grace of God, we can do that more and more. But let's close in prayer this morning. God, I pray that today has um, hopefully been clear and has been a blueprint on how we can live our lives. That if we want to belong to Jesus, we have to be firm in who he is. If we want to know that we are saved by grace through faith, we have to be convinced and convicted that that is all that there is. It's just faith in Christ. But then after that point, decisions have to be made. After we have the core convictions set in stone as our foundation, then we build on that. And my building might look slightly different than somebody else's building. My way of thinking or doing things might look different than someone else's, but that's okay. Those secondary issues don't need to be a cause for division. Those, di those distinctions that we have in different ways and avenues of living our lives of faith, as long as they stick within no con you know, these, these convictions, we can then have that room to live how you lead us to live. Paul says in one of his letters to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So I pray that we would live that way in grace, live that way in peace, live that way in unity. That I don't have to, it's not a cookie cutter thing. I don't have to look just like them. Our church doesn't have to look just like this other church. That's okay. We can be who you've called us to be. As we live within the parameters of our convictions, we can live out these compromises to do the work that you've called us to do. So help us, encourage us, empower us, embolden us to live that way. That I will stand for these truths of God's word and I will live my Christian faith the way that you're leading me to do that. Help us to live within that tension as difficult as it can be because it's the only way we can do this successfully. Give us that spirit of unity even here in this church as we work together as different people to do your work. As we work with different churches and different groups in the community that might believe a little bit differently, help us to have that spirit of unity to do the greater work that you've called us to do. That's our cry today is a spirit of unity within this church and in our community. So I pray you give us that spirit this week as we go out about our business and we leave this place today. Keep us safe. Give us an awesome week full of faith in you. Bring us back next time ready for more of you. In Jesus' name, amen.